from the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi, this is Tracy Jan calling from The Post. Am I catching President Trump, how are you? Hi, it's Robin Gabon at The Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Wednesday, January 20th. Today, an inauguration like no other and what it tells us about the future of the country. Please raise your right hand and repeat after me. I, Joseph Robinette Biden Jr., do solemnly swear. I, Joseph Robinette Biden Jr., do solemnly swear. That I will faithfully execute that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. Office of President of the United States. And will, to the best of my ability, will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. The Constitution of the United States. So help you God. So help me God. Congratulations, Mr. Thank President. Today, Joseph Biden was sworn in as the 46th president of the United States. If you watched on television, the ceremony looked very similar to how it's looked in past years. You know, you see the chief justice of the Supreme Court, you see the president put his hand on the Bible, get sworn in on the Capitol. Sean Sullivan covers the White House for The Post. But all you have to do is zoom out a little bit, look at the National Mall, look at the blocks surrounding the Capitol, look at the events of the last couple of weeks to realize this really was unlike any inauguration we've ever seen in history. Much of downtown was closed to the public. National Guardsmen and women were stationed everywhere, and the crowds were almost entirely absent. It was only a couple of weeks ago that we saw this attempted insurrection at the Capitol, this deadly insurrection. And so the mood surrounding today's inauguration was more tense, really, than anything in modern history. There was this massive troop presence, uh, as you mentioned, Martine, that we have not seen. It looked in some ways like Biden was going to be sworn in in the middle of a war zone. And, and I thought it was really interesting to see some of the solutions for having to deal with the threat of potential violence, for having to deal with social distancing protocols. All the seats were sort of scattered away from each other and people were just seated in groups of like twos and threes. And then the flags, that they had flags all over the mall really standing in for the thousands and thousands of people who otherwise would have been expected to be there. And I thought it was interesting in setting a tone that was both somber but still celebratory, that at least for me, watching from TV, it did seem like a moment of pride and excitement for many people and of respecting this time-honored tradition of our democracy. Yeah, and if you talk to the folks who organized this inauguration, I think they had some very clear goals going into this, and I think those goals became even more urgent after what we saw, the attempted insurrection at the Capitol a couple of weeks ago. And I think it was to strike that balance. They knew going in, this was not going to be your normal inauguration. You weren't going to have thousands of people lining up. You weren't going to have sort of the usual circus and pageantry that you have. But they did not want to make this seem like it was happening in a bunker somewhere, that this was not a swearing in that was open to the country that showed sort of the flavor of Washington. So 
as the events of today started to get underway, even as people were just kind of milling around on the steps of the Capitol, there were obviously some notable people who were there, some notable people who were not there. Of course, the one very important person who was not there was Trump, who left the White House earlier this morning. I will always fight for you. I will be watching. I will be listening gave uh, some brief remarks as he was on his way out, talking about how he was felt honored and privileged to have been president. I wish the new administration great luck and great success. Which, to me, at least seemed notable. But who were the people that you saw at the inauguration today who surprised you that they were there? Well, I think the biggest surprise, if you look at the course of the past few months and where the Trump administration and Trump and his allies have navigated, was the vice president, and that's Mike Pence. The fact that he showed up at this event when Donald Trump did not show up at this event shows the divide that has emerged in that administration and was not something that I think many people would have expected a few weeks ago. Mike Pence is somebody who is rarely broken from President Trump. He has been among his biggest defenders and champions, even through the most controversial times. A lot of Republicans believe that in the future, Mike Pence wants to run for president and in some ways has made this big bet that the best political path toward doing that is to tie himself to Trump. And by showing up at this event, he legitimized it in a way that President Trump has tried to delegitimize it over and over again with his baseless claims. You know, we saw former President Obama. We also saw George W. Bush. You heard Biden very early in his remarks. I thank my predecessors of both parties for their presence here today. I thank them from the bottom of my heart. And I know... Which I thought was a notable line. He's trying to send a signal that, look, there are Republicans out there, Republicans not named Donald Trump, who are willing to work with me, who do recognize that my victory is legitimate. So I think the presence of Bush, the presence of Pence there at that ceremony uh, was significant, one that Biden clearly wanted to call attention to, even though the outgoing president, Donald Trump, was not there. And that's what I also thought was very significant about the choice of senators who spoke before Biden and before Vice President Harris was sworn in. America, welcome to the 59th presidential inauguration. Of course, you had Amy Klobuchar, Democrat from Minnesota, who had actually run against Biden in the primary. But she talked about the Capitol attack outright. Two weeks ago when an angry, violent mob staged an insurrection and desecrated this temple of our democracy. It awakened us to our responsibilities as Americans. And tried to frame this event as celebratory in the context of rising above all of the struggles and challenges that this country has seen for the last four years. Well, I should have known when Senator Klobuchar got involved, at least there'd be a touch of snow up here this morning. But also the fact that Roy Blunt was there, Roy Blunt, Republican from Missouri, that he gave this speech talking about how this inauguration, the ceremony is a time-honored tradition, that we've done this through war, through depression, now during a pandemic. Once again, all three branches of our government come together as the Constitution envisions. Once again, we renew our commitment to our determined democracy, forging a more perfect union. It seemed like he was making the case that Republicans, or at least his brand of Republicans, are also on board with 
carrying on with the democratic process and trying to dispel this idea that there was some illegitimacy to this election. It, I don't know if it was like a coming together moment, but I did feel like it was an intentional move from Republicans to be there and to show some solidarity with Biden. It was certainly significant. You look at Roy Blunt. He is somebody who is a veteran of the Senate. He's somebody who is a close ally of Mitch McConnell, the Republican leader in the Senate, who we've seen in the past few days and weeks be more critical of Trump than he has been in the past. In the past, he has sidestepped a lot of the Trump controversies. He's not weighed in as much. Now we see him be pretty outwardly critical of Donald Trump. And so Blunt, an ally of McConnell, making the comments that he did today were significant. And I think it is a moment that a lot of Republicans, uh, at least some Republicans, I should say, on Capitol Hill want to look at as a way to kind of turn the page on the Trump era. So then we saw Vice President Harris sworn in. Kamala Davey Harris, solemnly swear. That I will support and defend the Constitution of the United States. That I will support and defend the Constitution. She didn't give a speech, but I think even some of the imagery of what it looked like to see the first Black woman, first Asian American woman, first woman vice president up there on that platform, I think it was really notable to people. Can you talk through some of the things that you saw in that moment? It was a hugely historic moment, not just for government, but for the United States to see a woman of color take the oath of office from Sonia Sotomayor, the first Latina Supreme Court justice. It was a very, very historic moment. It was a moment I think the incoming Biden administration wanted to make sure was an iconic moment, a moment that the country would look at and that people could point to and say, look, you know, this administration is one that is going to look like America. That was a promise that Joe Biden made over and over again. The campaign from the top level down, my administration is going to look like the country. And I think they viewed this event today as a way to sort of, you know, really underscore that message. And then after Harris, we saw President Biden officially sworn in shortly before noon. And then he gave a speech. Vice President Harris. That I think was really fitting of the national mood in, in a lot of ways and, and trying to achieve a lot of goals in one moment. So can you talk through a little bit about what you heard from Biden's speech, what parts were notable to you? This is America's day. This is democracy's day. A day of history and hope, of renewal and resolve. It was a very thematic and sort of big picture speech. He didn't really drill down on policy details, didn't really sketch out point by point what his agenda would be. Overall, the tone of the speech was was aspirational. The word that we heard over and over again was unity, unity, unity. It requires the most elusive of all things in a democracy. Unity. With unity. The way of unity. Unity. And that was really sort of the core of his message today. Bring the country together. Start to heal some of the divisive wounds. A line that he used that I think a lot of people are going to be talking about. We must end this uncivil war that pits red against blue. It was effectively a rebuttal to the Trump presidency, to the Trump era. The reality is right now, though, the country is very divided. We see that not only politically, there are certainly political divisions, ideological divisions, there are geographic divisions, racial divisions. So the question for Biden is this message, this call to unity, 
how many people across the country will actually rally behind it and how many people will reject it and say, no, we don't want to be a unified country right now. A cry for survival comes from planet itself, a cry that can't be any more desperate or any more clear. And now, a rise of political extremism, white supremacy, domestic terrorism that we must confront and we will defeat. You know, we heard Biden use the words white supremacy, domestic terrorism. It's a notable speech in that he pointed to threats facing the country. And a lot of those threats are right here. We've seen a lot of past speeches focus on the challenges we have abroad, the threats we face from abroad, from other countries, from foreign terrorists, from foreign actors. And while those threats still exist, I, I don't think we've seen a speech in a moment where a president has pointed to these threats to safety as coming from within the United States of America, using the words domestic terrorism. And in those calls for unity, I also thought it was interesting that to me, it seemed like Biden was not just talking to Republicans for them to come together with Democrats, but also talking to like more liberal more jaded Democrats to come together like with the center. Because, you know, I feel like a lot of the discussion, especially over the last two weeks since the attack on the Capitol has been, is this attack not who we are as Americans? Or is this attack a very good reflection of historically who America has been and that the attack and the animosity behind it is not an anomaly, but is in, in fact like very fundamental to American history and like to aggrieved white people in America. And, and I thought that was an interesting way to frame that. Yeah, it was. And, and he did seem to be speaking not just to Republicans and potentially skeptical Republicans, but also Democrats. And that was also a line that I think echoed some of the themes he underscored in the campaign. He often said, look, a lot of people think I'm naive. I'm out of touch. I'm old fashioned. I'm, I'm not in touch with reality here when I say that I think we can work together. And he repeated that today. I know speaking of unity can sound to some like a foolish fantasy these days. I know the forces that divide us are deep and they are real. He seemed to be saying, look, there's something bigger going on here. We need to fight to preserve our very democracy. This is bigger than a partisan battle. And so in that sense, he also seemed to be calling on both Republicans who might be skeptical of him, but also liberal Democrats who might be skeptical of him to rally behind this idea to see America in a glass half full way. So when people look back on this day, what do you think will stick out in their minds from watching this inauguration? Well, I think a couple of things are immediately going to be memorable about this. The unusual parts of this inauguration, I think, are going to stick with people for a long time. But then also Biden's attempt to kind of turn the page, start fresh, as he said, in his speech and kind of reboot the country. And does this ultimately be a moment in history where the country really did turn the page, really did chart a new course? Or do we see these divisions get worse? Do we see people becoming more divided, more combative? That's the part we don't know about today's speech. And I think two years, four years, 10 years down the road, we can answer that question of whether this was an inflection point or whether this was a speech that kind of fell on deaf ears you know, when I think about that question, I did feel like there were a couple hopeful moments from what we saw from the inauguration ceremony. Mr. President, Dr. Biden, Madam Vice President, 
Mr. Emhoff, Americans and the world. First of all, the inaugural poet, Amanda Gorman, 22 years old, she gave this recitation that I think moved a lot of people in the ways in which it really clearly articulated so many of the problems of this country, problems that way precede President Trump, but also the call to continue working toward improving those problems, improving the country. We are striving to forge our union with purpose to compose a country committed to all cultures, colors, characters, and conditions of man. And so we lift our gaze not to what stands between us, but what stands before us. We close the divide because we know to put our But also just watching the live feed of of what was happening after the swearing in, after Biden's speech, and watching Vice President Harris and her husband and former Vice President Pence and his wife walking down the steps together, saying goodbye to each other, Harris sort of sending off Pence as he gets into the, the SUV to go to wherever he's going. It felt kind of normal, like even though the last four years have been so vitriolic and that it was hard to even imagine getting to this day, it did feel like this is what an inauguration is like usually, right? That they're just sort of chatting with each other and with their spouses and sharing a few jokes and then having what looked like a pretty sincere send-off and carrying on with this tradition just as the country always has. Yeah, that's a really good point. You know, the Trump era has upended so many norms, so many usual traditional ways of doing things that sometimes people forget, you know, here's what an inauguration looked like before the Trump era. And it was a reminder of the sort of callback to the kind of era that Joe Biden has talked about envisioning as president. It it was a moment of calm. And we haven't been able to say that over the past four years a lot, a moment of calm. Sean Sullivan covers the White House for The Post. And yet the dawn is ours before we knew it. Somehow we do it. Somehow we've weathered and witnessed a nation that isn't broken, but simply unfinished. We, the successors of a country and a time where a skinny black girl descended from slaves and raised by a single mother can dream of becoming president only to find herself reciting for one. And yes, we are far from polished, far from pristine, but that doesn't mean we are striving to form a union that is perfect. The historic swearing-in of Vice President Harris was a meaningful moment for so many Black women around the country, and especially for AKAs, Harris's sorority sisters. Alpha Kappa Alpha, of course, is the country's oldest Black sorority, and Harris pledged while she was a student at Howard University. For me, I remember when the stories in our history were Rosa couldn't sit at the front of the bus. I remember that Martin had a dream. And I remember that Malcolm said, by any means necessary. Our sister, Kamala Harris, is getting ready to do all of those things that our ancestors had asked us to do. 
she is getting the opportunity to do it. My name is Bridget Roberson. I am 55 years old and I belong to Alpha Kappa Alpha Sorority Incorporated, or as we said, Alpha Kappa Alpha Sorority Incorporated. So Kamala D. Harris, she is a member of Alpha Kappa Alpha. She just became the first Black woman to be the Vice President of the United States of America. Not just Black woman, but just the first woman. And she has just set the bar and broke the glass ceiling for all of us to make a way and know that we can do it too. This is why we're so proud. This is why I'm so proud. Bridget and some of her AKA sisters watched the swearing-in today from Austin, Texas. Some even took off work for it. And we all have the same shirts and we have our chucks and our pearls. Uh, So we are ready to go and just celebrate this momentous occasion. This woman that has her pearls is our Vice President of the United States. That I will well and faithfully discharge. That I will well and faithfully discharge. The duties of the office on which I am about to enter. The duties of the office upon which I am about to enter. So help me God. So help me God. Yes, the tears are flowing. The tears are flowing. (laughs) I'm doing the holidays. We want her to know that we are there with our line sisters celebrating her. And and that's the importance of that because, you know, we are bonded together in sisterhood and in service. Bridget Roberson lives in Texas and she is an AKA. And now one more thing. In so many ways, this inauguration was an unusual one. Trump left the White House early this morning to head to Palm Beach rather than attending the inauguration of his successor. Still, at least one group of people has the same job that they always do, every four or eight years. Reporter Bonnie Berkowitz told us about the transfer of families that happened today behind the scenes at the White House. When a new president is inaugurated... The White House is his beginning at noon when he takes the oath of office. However, the White House belongs to the previous president right up until noon. That means that while everyone is at the Capitol and all eyes are focused there, the resident staff at the White House has a whole lot of work to do in just a few hours, and it's called the transfer of families. So what will normally happen on the day of the transfer of families is that a lot of staff will arrive at 4 a.m. and that's when things start to begin largely behind the scenes because it's very important. The cardinal rule is that they don't want to be seen as shoving the previous family out the door. But everybody will prepare for work and they will just sort of get ready to execute this grand plan that the chief usher has spent months, if not years, coming up with. In a normal situation, at 10.30 or thereabouts, as soon as the outgoing president and the incoming president leave together, everything just breaks loose in the White House. 
everybody goes to their stations, everybody starts to do this enormous process of changing the outgoing president's house into the incoming president's house with just a few hours. There are electricians and carpenters and other people who are pressed into moving duty. They're carrying boxes in and out. There will be people doing repair work. There will be people doing touch-up paint. There will be people changing rooms around because the White House has uh, can have more or fewer bedrooms depending on how the incoming first family wants to use those spaces. Then the housekeeping staff, which is probably not doing a lot of moving because they are going to be in the process of deep cleaning everything. Rugs, walls, windows. They were going to be changing out the mattresses, changing out all the linens. They're going to be stocking the bathrooms with all the supplies that the new family likes. They will be scrubbing everything, especially this year because of COVID. There will be a lot of scrubbing and cleaning and disinfecting. Perhaps even more than usual, although a previous chief usher told me that the process is always just so thorough that COVID really might not affect that a lot. One other really important thing that they do is change out the Oval Office to look exactly the way the new president is going to want it to look. That's one of the first things that a new president wants to see what the Oval Office will look like, designed the way he wants. And the chief usher's office works in conjunction with other bodies to try to get the Oval Office cleaned and any lingering papers archived and all that. And by somewhere between 3.30 and 5 o'clock, on a normal inauguration day, the parade will have ended and the new president and his family will come home. And they will greet the new family at the door and say, welcome to your new home, Mr. President. Bonnie Berkowitz is a graphics reporter for The Post. We will include a link to her piece in our show notes and at postreports.com. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. If you are a regular listener to this podcast and find it to be an enlightening or important part of your day, consider subscribing to The Washington Post. Subscribers make all of our work possible. Right now, there is an exclusive offer going for podcast listeners. For just $59, you can get two years of unlimited digital access to everything that The Post publishes. That comes out to like $2.46 a month. To get that offer, go to WashingtonPost.com slash subscribe or find a link in today's show notes. And thank you. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. 